You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. So we, as the people of God, as the church of Jesus Christ, as this local assembly called Cities Church, we have a missionary calling. We saw last week that going back to the very beginning and then all throughout the Bible, God has called his people to be a so that people. We exist not only for ourselves to know and enjoy God, but also so that others may know and enjoy God, so that all the nations may know and enjoy God. We are here ourselves, we're here because of the church's missionary calling, and now we've also inherited that calling. We now get to join in on God's global work, and my prayer is that we would. My hope for last week's sermon as a part one, and now my hope for this week's sermon as a part two, is that God, by His Spirit, would lead us as a church to step into our missionary calling with a renewed passion and energy. I want us as a church to choose together, to choose greater faithfulness in God's purpose to magnify His glory among all nations. And this week, as I mentioned last week, as a part two, I want to get more practical. Okay, last week was like a Bible study. This week, I have more application. There are three things, three things that we must do as part of our missionary calling. And we're going to spend most of the time of this sermon on those three things. But before we get there, I do want to tell you just overall the meaning of Psalm 68, which is our text today. And I, I, do have, I, do, I do have a sermon outline for those of us who appreciate such things. For those of us who don't care about sermon outlines, you're a weirdo, okay? Uh, either way, I got two questions. I'm answering two questions. Here they are. The first one is this. What is the overall meaning of Psalm 68? And the second question is how do we ask City's Church step into our missionary calling with a renewed passion and energy. So two, two parts of the sermon. One, overall meaning of Psalm 68, two, local church application. And before we even get started beyond now, let's pray again and ask for God's help. Father, in this moment, again, here by your grace, we ask that you, by your Spirit, would speak to us through your Word. You are at work in your people. You are at work in us, in this church. And so we surrender now to your work for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So the meaning of Psalm 68, last week we saw that in the book of Psalms overall and in the the immediate Psalms leading up to Psalm 67, there has been an all nations theme that's been building. Psalm 67 is like the high point of that all nations theme where the psalmist is exuberant in his hope that one day all the nations of the earth will worship God. In Psalm 67, when he says, let the peoples praise you, O God, let all the peoples praise you, let the nations be glad and sing for joy. When the psalmist says that in Psalm 68, he is describing future reality. And Psalm 67 ends in verse 7 with, let all the nations of the earth, or let all the ends of the earth fear him. Psalm 67 ends there. And so we should wonder, 
how now will Psalm 68 follow that up? Is the all nations theme over in Psalm 67, or is Psalm 68 going to continue the all nations theme? Well, I want to show you that Psalm 68 does continue the all nations theme, and it, it continues that theme by showing us how the all nations hope is going to be realized. I'm just going to tell you what it is. Here it is. Psalm 68 tells us that the all nations hope of Psalm 67 in the previous Psalms, the all nations hope will be realized by the coming of a victorious divine king. That's the message of Psalm 68, which is a Psalm of David, which is significant. The composer of the Psalms, he wants us to see that the all nations hope and the hope for the Messiah are one and the same. The divine king who will bring about the worship of God from all nations is the Messiah going back to Psalm 2, which we saw last week. God has made the nations his heritage, the Messiah's heritage. God has said the ends of the earth are his possession, the Messiah's possession. So the way that we see this in Psalm 68 is that God is, is described here as a divine warrior king who has come to defeat his enemies. David recounts for us the ways that God has shown himself through his past actions. The book of Exodus is alluded to. The book of Judges is alluded to. The conquest of the promised land in Joshua is alluded to. But the main thing here, the feature presentation in this history of Israel in Psalm 68 is that God has chosen Jerusalem, Mount Zion. God has chosen to be his dwelling place. That's what's going on with the mention of the mountain of Bashan in verse 15. That's kind of a funny moment in the psalm. Bashan was another mountainous area close to Jerusalem. And historically, it was a fertile place. It was a productive place. It was a great mountain. Bashan was a great place to live. It was in all the top five lists in the day, right? But here in verse 15, the mountain of Bashan is personified as being jealous of Mount Zion because Mount Zion is, in verse 16, the mount that God desired for his abode. Mount Zion, Jerusalem, is the place that God had chosen to make his dwelling place. And if we're tracking with the Psalm through verse 15, we see here that the divine king has been victorious. The divine king has settled the place of his throne. He settled the place of his presence in Mount Zion. And then we see there's this victorious procession. Okay, look at this in verse 18. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. That's a victorious kingly procession. And part of that procession, there's a big celebration that's happening. A big, a big celebration surrounds this procession. There are singers and musicians, and there are the people of Israel, and they're all coming together to worship God in Jerusalem. But look at this. Israel 
is not the only people who are part of the celebration. Look at verse 31. Noble shall come from Egypt. Cush shall hasten to stretch out her hands to God. Now, what do we know about Egypt and Cush? They're from the nations. These are from all nations. They're Gentiles. We know about Egypt because Egypt has been a big part of the biblical storyline. Cush is actually another word for Ethiopia. Some translations may even say Ethiopia. And so verse 31, Psalm 68, verse 31, is talking about Egypt and Africa. Both are outside of Israel. Both are two examples of all nations. And here they are worshiping together with Israel, the God of Israel. Verse 32, O kingdoms of the earth, sing to God. Sing praises to the Lord. This is the all nations theme all over again. The theme continues. And what Psalm 68 is envisioning here is what the book of Revelation describes in Revelation 7, verse 9. And behold, a great multitude, Revelation 7, 9, a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, were standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The worship of God from all nations is the hope that runs through the entire storyline of Scripture, and that hope comes to be through the victory of the Messiah. That's Psalm 68. That's the message of Psalm 68. And I know that's a quick overview of a, of a long psalm. But I want to confirm for you for just a minute here that Psalm 68 really is about Jesus. And I'm saying this based upon what the Apostle Paul says in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, when Paul talks about the purpose and the mission of the church, he quotes from Psalm 68 verse 18, the you ascended on high verse. Paul quotes that and he says that the ascension mentioned in Psalm 68 was fulfilled by Jesus in his resurrection from the dead and ascension to his heavenly throne. That's when Jesus led his victorious procession and gave gifts to the church for the church's mission. We don't have time to get into all the details here. We're going to preach through Ephesians one day. But Paul very deliberately connects Psalm 68 to Jesus. And therefore, we must make that same connection. The concluding overall message of Psalm 68 in light of the whole Bible is that the death and resurrection of Jesus, the victory of Jesus, is how all the nations will come to worship him. That's how Psalm 68 fits with Psalm 67 and the all nations theme. And when it comes to our mission, 
We have to hold these two things together all the time. The, the hope of all nations worshiping God and the how of the gospel of Jesus. You can never separate the two. Another way to say it is this. The goal of Revelation 7, when God is worshiped by all nations, is accomplished through the mission of Matthew 28, when Jesus tells us to make disciples of all nations. I want to connect this for you. It's, 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 it's amazing. Matthew 28, make disciples of all nations. Revelation 7, all nations worship God. Matthew 28, the church's present disciple-making labor is what leads to the end-time worship of God of all nations. A few ways to say it. Missions exist for the sake of worship. Missions exist right now because we're not, we're not there yet, see. But that's where we're headed. And when we get there, the mission's complete. But we're not there yet, so we're here, but we're headed there. Got it? Now, I want to get practical, okay? Um, this is the application. That was part one, Psalm 68. Segue, part two, okay? This is where I want to answer the question, what's our role in this? How do we practically... As Cities Church, how do we step into our missionary calling with a renewed passion and energy? There are three things we must do. Here's the first. We must be a contrast people. To be a contrast people means that our church, our community here, must be different from the world that surrounds us. This part of our missionary calling goes back to the Old Testament. It goes back to God's missionary calling on Israel. We saw last week that God made a radical promise to Abraham. He told him that he would bless all the nations of the earth through him. And then later in the book of Exodus, when God rescued Israel and he established Israel as a nation, God restates his promise to Abraham to be accomplished through Israel. He says to Israel as a nation, Exodus 19.5, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So Israel had a priestly calling for the sake of the nations, and that priestly calling went together with their holiness, their holiness. They were to be different. They were to be set apart for God's purpose. When you'd see Israel next to everybody else, they were a contrast people. One theologian says that the contrast was seen in what they displayed, that they were a showcase to the world of how being in covenant with Yahweh changes you. That was one really important purpose of the law of God's law. God's law, his instruction, his word was meant to be a guide for how Israel should live as a contrast people among all the other peoples of the earth. 
And we see the law doing this in two ways. First, God's law was meant to lead Israel to embody their values. The nation of Israel, like God's original plan for humanity, existed to value God more than everything else. God's greatest commandment, Deuteronomy 6, was love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And of course, the second greatest commandment was to love, is to love your neighbor as yourself. Those are the two greatest commandments, or we could say the two highest values. It's really simple. Love God, love people. Love God, love people. Every other law, every other commandment from God is simply an extension or application of those two values. And because what you value most will come through in the way you live, God's law was meant to be a guide for how everyday life looks when you love God more than anything and you love others right after him. God's law was meant to show us that every area of our lives, every area of our lives is meant to be lived under the direct and radical supremacy of God. Everything is from God and by God and for God. Everything is ultimately, truly about God. And God wants his people to show that in their lives. And if we're honest here for a minute, that is actually too much God for a lot of people. The only way you could have more God in your life than that is if God actually indwelled you by his Holy Spirit. And that is certainly too much God for anyone who doesn't love God more than everything else. And here's at least one thing this means for us. I'm going to bring it down for a minute. If the moral will of God, which is what we find in the Bible, if the moral will of God found in the Bible seems too demanding of us, that says more about us than it does God and his word. If it seems too demanding of us, check your values, check your values. God intends for his people to have a lot of him in everything. His law, his moral will, his word shows us this, and it guides us in how we live that out. And the law was meant to do something else. Secondly, God's law was meant to lead Israel to challenge the surrounding idolatry of the nations. And you can see how this is closely related to embodying their highest value. A people who is radically centered on God and who genuinely care for others, that people stands out in the world, right? They're a contrast people, and that contrast stands against, pushes back, opposes the worship of lesser rival gods. In other words, an Israelite could not truly worship the true God and at the same time be okay with their neighbor sacrificing children to Baal. 
And we might think, but see, that was in the Old Testament. Today, don't people have the religious liberty to worship Baal if that's what they choose? Don't people get to choose who they worship, right? Well, the answer is yes. In our pluralistic society, people have the right to worship whoever they choose, but they should not have the right to sacrifice and mutilate children. I want to be clear about this. Because if we as a church are not a contrast people who stands against that, then what do we think we have to say to the other peoples of the world? We got nothing to say to them. You think they want to hear us? If we are are okay with that, please, they'd say, keep it there. Keep it in America. We don't want it. We need to understand that being a contrast people is what confirms that we are missionaries of the true God and not missionaries of the idols of our culture. We cannot export or spread what we do not have. If we want to take the gospel, if we want to take the good news to the other nations of this earth, then we need to live here in the difference that good news makes. And this is just simple math, right? There's nothing controversial about that. This is basic stuff. The quality of our community here, like our shared God-centeredness, our love for others here, has to be the foundation of our mission to the peoples out there. We got to be a contrast. We must be a contrast people. Here's the second thing. The second thing we must do if we're going to step into our missionary calling with a renewed passion is we we must join the advance. And the key word here is join, okay? Again, last week I mentioned this. I told you I'd mention it again. We are, not, we are not reinventing the wheel here when it comes to global missions. We are not trying to be on the cutting edge of anything. We are only gladly participating in a work that was started a very long time ago in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, when Jesus empowered his apostles to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. We see in the book of Acts in chapter 13 that that mission that Jesus gives is already being fulfilled It's when Paul was sent out on his first missionary journey. And here is where I think, man, perspective really is important, okay? So I want you to use your imagination for a minute, okay? We're going to just think hard for a few minutes here. Imagine that you get a magazine sent to you about global missions. We're going to call it Global Missions Magazine. I want you to visualize the front cover of this magazine. The front cover has these big words on it, reaching the nations. You see it? Global Missions Magazine, reaching the nations. And beside those words, there's a photo of a person from the nations. How do you imagine that person looks? Well, if you're like me, 
maybe you imagine that person as having like over a hundred beaded necklaces around their neck. And they've got these long, huge, elaborate earrings and maybe a big, awesome nose ring hanging down. And they got a colorful headdress and they got markings and ornaments all over their forehead. And of course they're holding a spear, okay? I have a magazine like this. Maybe that's what you imagine. If you're like me, maybe you imagine that this person from the nations looks very different from how we look in here. That's one, to be clear, that's not wrong because some people from the nations do look that way. They look different than how we look in here. And if that Global Missions magazine was printed in America, it makes sense that the front cover of that magazine would feature a photo of a person who looks different from Americans. But imagine for a minute, keep using your imagination, imagine for a minute that the magazine was printed in Jerusalem by the apostles. Pretend for a minute that the early church printed a global, the early church, Acts 2, printed a global missions magazine. Never mind the time period, forget the time period. But just imagine the Acts 2 church in Jerusalem releases this global missions magazine, how do you think the person on the front cover would look? They would look a lot like you and me. We could take a photo of any part of this room and that could be the front cover of that global missions magazine. I explained last week, biblically speaking, we are part of all nations. We are part of all the nations, the ends of the earth. And I know I said that, I know you've heard that, maybe you've thought about it a little bit more, but as a thought experience here, keep working with me. I want you to imagine this. Imagine this Global Missions magazine. The front cover says, Reaching the Nations. And imagine it's your face beside those words. Reaching the nations, and it's your face. I don't know how that makes you feel, but that humbles me so much. I'm so humbled by that. The ends of the earth means you in the world, us. The ends of the earth is us, and I want us to get that. I want that to land for us. And now, let me tell you now, one thing that does mean and one thing that does not mean. I'll start with what it does not mean. First, understanding that we are the nations does not mean that we only do missions to people who look like us here in America, and we still get to call it global missions, okay? No. Not at all, that's not what we're saying. Instead, we should think of global missions not as trying to simply reach the nations, but as trying to reach the nations different from us in a place different from here. It started in Jerusalem, which means we are the ends of the earth, and there are other ends of the earth. There are others out there who have never heard the gospel, and we must go there. 
We must send and go to the places where Christ has not been named, to a people different from us in a place different from here. That's the, when we talk about global missions, that's, the, that's what I want you to think. Global missions, a people different from us, a place different from here. But what we have in common is that we're all part of the nations. We are the nations. And here's the second thing it does mean. It means that our sending and going in the work of global missions is sending and going as those who owe their existence to global missions. I want to say this again because it's, it's, it's important, but it's, it's also subtle. What this means is that the work we do in advancing the gospel is a continuing of the advance of the gospel. We ourselves are proof of gospel advance. And what we're doing in global missions is that we're just joining in on that. We are participating in God's purpose to magnify his glory among all nations. And I just want you to know that purpose is going pretty well, okay? It's going pretty good here for a couple thousand years. There are some reports today that say that right now more people are coming to Christ than ever before. For example, here's a fascinating stat. In the year 2000, 814 million Christians lived in Europe and North America, while 660 million lived in Africa and Asia. As of last year, 838 million live in Europe and North America. 1.1 billion live in Africa and Asia. And we get to join that. We get to get in on that gospel advance. The gospel is spreading, and we can and should be a part of that spreading by our sending and going. And I want to just speak here to our church corporately. If, if this is for you, if you call Cities Church home so far in the first eight years of our church, um, our role in global missions has mainly been support. We have supported, we do support global missionaries and their work. We've supported, but we've not yet sent. Two categories, support and send. Now we've sent out some church planters. Church planters are here currently doing work in North America. But we have not yet raised up and sent out global missionaries to the peoples different from us in the places different from here. But I am praying that in this new chapter of our church's life, we're going to do that. As a church rooted, I'm praying that God would raise up men and women from this congregation, some of you. I'm praying God will raise some of you up to take the gospel to those who've never heard. And there are some opportunities I want to tell you about, some exciting things. There's a lot of info I could pause now and give you. But for now, um, I just wanted to tell you that we have developed a global missions pathway. It's a pathway to increase your knowledge about global missions and to equip you in that work in the hopes that we can one day send you to all nations in places different from here. One of the, the big reasons that we've sent out so many church planters is because we have a pathway to develop and send out, equip church planters. And so I want us to have something like that with global missions. And so if you're in, this is like 
parenthetical. If you're interested in global missions, like if you are, have an interest in learning more, if you're trying to discern a call about whether God's calling you to go to peoples different from us in places different from here, I would love to talk to you. Okay, so come talk to me about that. Close that, parentheses. Now let me get to the third and final point. The third thing we must do if we're going to step into our missionary calling with the renewed passion energy is that we must love Jesus above all else. Whatever gives us the passion and energy to step into global mission should also be what sustains us in that energy, what sustains us in that work. What is the real reason we should step in and stay in the work of advancing the gospel to the other ends of the earth? Well, there are a few different things we could say here, right? And, and some things and people do say. Well, one approach is that we could emphasize the need because there is a significant need, a crazy need. I mean, the gospel is advancing in some parts of the world, but it's totally not in other parts of the world. I, I can tell you right now that there are currently right now 7,327 unreached people groups around the world. 59% of the world's population has less than 2% Christians there. And if we combine those numbers with mortality numbers, one set I've seen says that every single day, 157,690 people die in their sins apart from the gospel. That's overwhelming, right? Like, goodness, that's overwhelming. The need is great, and we could. We, we could just keep hammering that point. The need is great. The need is great. Or what we could do, I could talk about courage. You know, I could, I could challenge you to step out of your comfort zone, which it's going to require. But I could challenge you. Have courage. Step out of your comfort zone. Do the hard thing. Resolve to do it, man. At all costs, no matter what, go, go, go. I could do that. I, I could appeal to the need or I could appeal to your courage and both are needed, both are true, both have a place, both are good. But the only thing that will truly lead us and keep us in the work of global missions is knowing that Jesus is worthy. He is worthy of the worship of all the nations of the earth. Worthy are you, Lord Jesus, to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransom a people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Jesus is the one who does the saving. We're just trying to tell people about him. He does the saving, he gets the glory. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And it's one thing to read Revelation 5 and 7. It's one thing to read that Jesus is worthy and that to him belongs all the glory. It's another thing to love him for that. Like, do you love the fact that Jesus is worthy of all that glory? Do you love that about him? Do you delight in his glory? Is he our, our highest treasure? 
we must love him above all else. Because that, look, that's really the difference maker, y'all. Like, that's the difference maker. Can I say it? It's the realness of Jesus. It's the fact that he's a real person who really did what the Bible says. Jesus is why it matters. Jesus is why we're here. Jesus is why we're going to raise up people and send people. Jesus is the reason that we're going to go. Nothing else, look, nothing else really matters. It's him. It's him. We love him. We want people to know him. We want to tell people about him. He's the one we worship, him, Jesus. We love him more than anything else. And that's what now brings us to this table. This is his table. The heart of the gospel that has changed us and that we want to give to others is that Jesus Christ has died to bring us close to God. And without his salvation, look, nothing, nothing makes sense in life apart from Jesus. God made us for himself. God made us for his glory to have fellowship with him. But our sin has broken that fellowship and it makes us deserving of his judgment. But Jesus, rich in mercy, in his death and resurrection, he took that judgment and conquered our worst enemy so that now when we put our faith in Jesus, when we put our faith in him, we are forgiven and free and we are made to be the sons and daughters of God. And if you're here this morning and you've not yet trusted in Jesus, if you've not put your faith in Jesus, you can do that right now. In this moment, put your, trust him. In in this moment, right now, just say, Jesus, I trust you. I believe in you. If you're here and you have trusted in Jesus, if you have called on his name, if you are united to him by faith, in this moment, we come to his table to remember his gospel and to give him thanks. This is the Lord's table, and it is for all who are united to him by faith. We're going to serve the bread first. I want to ask that you take it and hold it, and then I'll come back up and we'll eat the bread all together. His body is the true bread. Let us serve you.